So, Bob, I have some emails here from patrons that they want us to read on the air and answer. What do you say, Bob? I say let's read them on the air and answer them. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor, and I almost forgot the word host. Who are you, Bob? (laughs) I'm not a host. (laughs) Um, I am a therapist in practice in Seattle. I see couples. I do some DBT. And uh, I'm your old friend from grad school 100 years ago. Well, the first thing I want to talk about is the George Floyd death and protests. You know, just as you just as you just bring it up and I sort of slow down and I start thinking about it, I just feel uh, sadness and tenderness. You know, it's it's like I feel self-conscious because I'm a white, straight man in America. So I'm in the catbird seat of privilege. I, so it feels like anything I have to say is, you know, who gives a shit? Uh, people are sick of hearing it from white guys. I'm impressed with the strength uh, and the dignity of people that are standing and marching. And I, I can only just barely imagine what that poor man went through. It's so fucking awful. It's, it's, it's so horrible. It's almost unbelievable. And yet there it is, common experience. It's just, a white person would say, it's hard to believe person of color would say, welcome to my fucking world, I imagine. So anyways, I feel horror and sadness and guilt uh, and shame and a wish to not sound patronizing. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And I don't think until you just said that, did I really think about what it would be like to be him, to be unable to breathe Oh my God. And to be like, just, could you please just take your knee off my neck? Uh, why, why we even have to have fucking conversation about it is just like why someone needs to be in such a position to have to ask for that or plead for that is just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And yet here it is. Believe it. This is who we are. This is where we're at. Yeah. I have to say, I don't know about you, but... Mm-hmm. I've seen so many of these, you know, videos that I became desensitized to it. And so when I saw this one come out a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I mean, this sort of thing happens all the time. This one just happens to be caught on camera. And as the protest started to increase, as the commentary started to increase, as the politicians started to actually do something about it i started saying and then when you say what would it be like to be him it just brings me out of that desensitized state that i had been lulled into for the past i don't know 20 years maybe longer really because it wasn't like i didn't know that police officers were doing this they did it i don't know about you bob but they did it to me not i don't know if it's because i'm slightly brown or if I'm de- I was a young man in the tw- in my 20s but I remember police officers being total a-holes in situations that didn't really deserve it now I'm sure I wasn't the pinnacle of society myself at the time but I don't know I I just remember anyway my point is is that I uh, slowly kind of came out of my desensitization and I started thinking, well, 
okay, so this, when you really just think about what happened, we all know what happened. He, he had his knee on his back for, I think, almost nine minutes. Three of the minutes, he was unresponsive. Why would you do that? Okay, so obviously there's something wrong with that dude. Then, but just look at the circumstances. He knew he was being filmed. It was in broad daylight. There was a whole crowd of people. Multiple people were filming, and he kept doing it. There were, I, I think, at least three other officers who were observing this whole thing happen, and they did nothing to intervene as far as we can tell. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they did something, but not enough anyway. That in broad daylight that you would feel okay doing that sort of thing. Imagine what these people are doing when there aren't cameras around, when they're, it, it, when it's dark, when they know they could get away with it. This was what they were doing under broad daylight while being filmed, and they felt completely justified. And it, even, and it wasn't a flash-in-the-pan anger response, too. You, like, you'd think a couple minutes, that makes sense. But for nine minutes, well, three of the minutes, he's unresponsive. The, the attitudes that have to be present and the culture that has to be present in order for that to make sense to those police officers is very, very telling. And the more anyone thinks about it, I think, and everyone has been, I think, for me anyway, it just puts that into sharp relief. But yeah, it is. I imagine. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, it is very sad. I just wanted to piggyback on what you were saying that the yeah. primary emotion here is just sadness uh, right now i'm imagining being that cop and being filmed so being witnessed publicly doing your job everybody scrutinizing you i'm just imagining the dissonance inside your heart you would have to double down on your abuse so that because to the i'm just imagining the shame a person might feel if they say oh god yeah right i'm being an asshole right here and publicly being witnessed being an asshole. And the right thing to do is to just like, oh, yeah, right. I'm a human. I'm not perfect. And what people do, what at least what a lot of us would do, is we attach ourselves to our position and we double down on it. And so nine minutes goes by and three minutes of that guy being, that poor man being unresponsive. And here I am believing in what I'm doing because I'm too much of a fucking wimp to just say, Yes, you're right. I'm wrong. What am I doing? How, how cruel this is. How just obviously blatantly cruel it is. And yet I'm, I'm convinced that that man had no compunction and no thought of his own behavior as cruelty. But as, oh, well, I'm a cop. I'm just doing my job. Horseshit. Horseshit. And you know what? It just makes me think. The other day, I got an email and it was... Um, disturbing to me. And my first response was to close up and circle the wagons. And I, I forwarded it to you and you responded to me and you said, compassion. Like you wrote compassion. That was like, you wrote two words and one of them was compassion. (laughs) And I thought, fuck yeah, what a great reminder. I, I lose my sense of compassion. I lose my sense of and this was in private. This is just me in my own home. And I was really grateful to you for reminding me, Compassion Bob. And every time I come back to that, 
things go better, you know, like they're sometimes they're more painful. They're sometimes much, much more poignant, but they're just fucking better with compassion. And I don't mean fake, you know, blow smoke up my ass, woo woo, lifetime, you know, happy ending hallmark moment. I mean, genuine, real compassion for the suffering of the other and a willingness to step inside their shoes and see the world from that point of view and actually give a shit about it. Yeah. I, I was, it, it changed the way that I responded to that email in a way that it was so much more in line with my own values. I just needed a, a little reminder. And I was very grateful to you for um, helping me with that. Well, yeah. I mean, it was easy for me because I wasn't yeah. necessarily the one being targeted or triggered or something, but... Yeah, you're right. I mean, I get it. But on the other hand, that's the thing I've noticed about you in this podcast. Actually, the thing that I admire most about you and this podcast is that that is your consistent message. And you're not like... You're not like Susie Pollyanna Sunshine. You're like, you'll call it out. Well, that's being a dick. That guy's being a dick or whatever. You know, you're not like um, uh, woo-woo float on a fluffy cloud. But your consistent message is always the same. It's always compassion, compassion. And you were, you were talking about, I was listening to the one the other day about uh, the lady with the re, what was it? Like the adopted kid and they sent the kid back or something. I don't remember what it's called. Yeah. Rehoming? Well, yeah, that's the, I think slang term on the internet that they're using yeah right and the the, I, the youtuber who adopted a kid and then gave the kid back essentially right and you know it's easy to jump on that fucking trolling anonymous bandwagon of the internet where you know oh she's such an asshole because blah 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 and your message was most people don't adopt that's really hard and people do that she's probably taking it very seriously and this is not easy for her and i didn't listen to the whole thing so i don't remember all of what you said but i really appreciated the um the basic decency in that that nobody would if i'm remembering correctly nobody would you're saying nobody would do this just because they wanted attention the lady didn't do it that that way and so dismissing her in this sort of two-dimensional easy peasy black and white way is probably off the mark yeah, and believe me, I don't make any friends on the internet when I do that. Yeah, I bet. There are actual things worth shaming. I just don't know if the typical thing that the internet chooses to shame people for are those people. Yeah, um, It's it's a very weird world where this woman gets 99% of the internet anger of the week when there are legitimate shameable targets out there doing legitimately horrible things. Rich people who don't donate enough money to charities, people who are still polluting the earth when there are other options that they could be pursuing. We should be shaming people, but I don't know. Anyway, but yeah, compassion. So when we understand, I think it helps us to have compassion and we're rambling or I'm rambling. <laughs> well, do you think we do that because we don't want to embrace uncertainty that we, we crave um, certainty, black and white. We crave um, not being. Um, uh, oh God, I don't like the words black and white anymore because because of the racial connotations. But um, good and bad. We crave uh, feeling our sense of our own goodness and being able to label the other label the other as the bad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. I, I'm quite convinced that a lot of people are walking around with a lack of self-esteem, and these targets yeah, are right. like that that goofy kid on the playground that everyone picks on 
to make themselves feel better. Right. Right. Yeah. This is a maybe a just a different form of the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. The goofy yeah. kid, the goofy new kid shows up to school, doesn't wear the right clothes, doesn't say the right things, and instantly gets identified as someone who you could pick on. And then all the people who lack self-esteem and who have issues see that target and say, ha ha, now I can feel just a little bit better for about five minutes while I comparatively push this person down and make myself feel elevated in that situation. It's not like, it's not, as I always say, it's not like at the age of 18, we suddenly become a different creature, (laughs) right? All of those tendencies that we deem to be childish and quite common don't just disappear when we graduate from high school. They, they're, they just transform into some other forum. And I, and I think this is part of that. As I always say, and I said throughout, she could be a horrible person. And she there could. is a legitimate question of the ethics of having your kids yeah. on a channel that is seen by millions of people. Yeah. Do those kids have the... Uh, obviously, they're too young to provide consent, even if they did provide consent. Uh, and we need to look at that as a culture. It's a right. new thing that we didn't have 20 years ago right. that, that people could do this. There were laws of, about child actors right. that in most states, um, and the, they were actors. They were playing a part. They weren't being themselves, you know. And now we live in the reality TV situation and the YouTube situation where we probably should look at that. And I suspect in 10 or 20 years, there are going to be laws in the United States that prevent people from having kids on reality TV shows and these sorts of YouTube channels. But as I said in the episode, it's hard to draw the line because what about someone who just wants to post a video of their them with their kids at the park on Facebook and they have 3,000 friends? Where Where's the line between the bad zone where you're going to harm your kids versus understandable zone where someone's just sharing their, and we want to live in a free country where people have freedoms to make their own choices. We don't want to become China or North Korea where we control everything that humans do. And so there's, there's that tension there. Um, And, but I think it is worthy. You know, I was, I was thinking, I was talking about this with, Stacy and it just suddenly occurred to me I don't think I'd really thought about it but if my imagine Bob for yourself that your dad had a YouTube channel when you were 10 12 years old oh, and dis- <laughs> right and decided to make and became really popular and filmed you and all your siblings and your mom and at the age of 10, you're probably going to go along with it, right? You're kind of, you're going to be like, okay, well, I, I would look like a jerk if I don't go along with it, but okay, what, what choice do I have? He just busted into my room and he did a little prank on me and okay, ha ha dad. And he controls the narrative. You don't have any control over it. It's out there for millions of people to see. Your friends at school know you as the kid who gets pranked by his dad or whatever it is. 
you know, what would that feel like to you? It would feel fucking awful. Yeah. There's a high demand situation anyways, because, you know, the 10 year old brain is entirely dependent on the parent. And so, um, well, if you grew up in the kind of, <laughs> if you had those kind of experiences I had when I was a kid, there's a lot riding on compliance. Right. So um, there would be no possibility that I could consent in any kind of real way. Or as a, I heard a sex therapist say once, if you can't say no, you can't ever really say yes. Right. Yeah. So um, uh, that would just be another example of how to be fucked. Yeah. Now, for some kids, maybe they love it. They're like, hey, I'm popular on YouTube. And they turn 30 years old at some point. They're like, yeah, that was really fun. And yeah, there were some pros and cons, but I really liked it and sort of helped mm-hmm. me get started in my career or whatever. But mm-hmm. But what about, even if it's something like 10% of kids consider it a regrettable experience, those kids, it, does, it, does that pain justify the 90% that are right. neutral or consider it positive? I think most of us would say no. Yeah. And I think we have a very important job ahead of us to start thinking about those ethics. And it would drastically change the internet in the United States. But we've done it before. There have been other things on YouTube that have actually uh, protected kids. They've they've done things to protect kids. And so I think that's another part of it that I I think is a legitimate question that people are bringing up. Having said that, there are so many people doing that, and she's not alone. There are so many YouTubers and Instagrammers who involve their kids in their content. So if she is wrong, then a lot of people are wrong. Yeah. And our politicians and legislatures and and votership are wrong for not raising awareness to actually change this. If it's not against the law, that doesn't mean it's right if it's not against the law, but right. it does mean that we clearly don't have education or awareness or enough uh, um, discussion around this to alert parents of the downside of these kinds of things anyway. Hmm. Um, well, we haven't got to an email, but let's get to one. Okay. <laughs> Mostly, Bob, you know, it's been a while since we talked, so it's just great it to, is. it's just great to, great to chat. Yeah, it should last a couple of times we did this. We didn't have video and now I get to actually see your face. It's nice. Yeah. Am I fatter? <laughs> <laughs> We were having a joke about that a little bit earlier. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a break and we get back. Let's continue. What do you say, Bob? Yes. All right. We're back from the break. Let's get into some patron emails here. This one is from patron Kelly from Florida. She writes, I was wondering whether you or Bob could explain how someone's attachment style can make it more difficult for them to leave an abusive relationship, hmm. you know. So, how does someone attachment style make it more difficult for them to leave an abusive relationship? What do you think, Bob? Um, this is an interesting question. Uh, I'm kind of curious how we're going to answer it. The first thing that pops into my head is that, um, on average, in straight relationships where there's domestic violence, uh, where the male partner is violent towards the female partner it takes her an average of six times of leaving to make it stick that's the average because 
I think it's actually quite hard to leave a relationship even under non-abusive situations or conditions. Um, right. So I don't know if we know that attachment style is um, a big player in that. I kind of, I kind of wonder about that. I'm kind of curious about what you think, but I could imagine a person with a preoccupied style. Mm, no, I didn't want to say that. The thing is, is that even with attachment style, the thing is, is that their attachment styles, they're what you do when you're attached. And being attached makes it hard to relieve a relationship. And it is natural for humans to attach to partners uh, even um, when or if there happens to be abuse in the relationship. It's very natural. I'm not saying that people seek out getting hurt. Nobody seeks out getting hurt. But getting attached is part of the deal with being a human. Right. So I don't want to say that, oh, it's... It's her attachment style that makes her stay. Yeah, that sounds a little like blaming the victim and denying something that's fundamental to humanity, which is we attach. Yeah, love your answer. It's exactly the way I would answer it. Uh, And you're looking at the fundamentals of human experience, not because it's so tempting to say like, oh, well, clearly the reason why victims don't leave abusive relationships is there's some sort of pathology there. And it must, an attachment style, there must be something wrong there rather than looking at one. Well, let me get into it. So there yeah. is actually, I looked into the research and there is actually some differences of attachment style, but, uh, but it's, but the bigger issue here is, as you say, Bob, and this is true for all intimate partner violence, uh, uh, sorts of relationships, whether it's heterosexual or gay or whatever, it's basically hard for everyone to leave an abusive relationship, regardless of their attachment style, as you were saying, Bob. There's so many fears. Fears of violence to self, fear of violence to other people, fear of violence to your pets or your children, fear of the unknown, fear of judgment from outside of a relationship that didn't work out, fear of financial ruin, fear of losing your children, fear of the courts, fear of lawyers, fear of just general chaos or um, and even fear of going back eventually. A lot of people fear that because, as you said, a lot of times they do go back and they think, well, if I leave, I'm just going to go back and why leave? And through intimate partner violence, high control relationships, your identity is broken down. You incur a lot of emotional abuse from your abusive partner and it can essentially erase your identity Stockholm syndrome, these kinds of things, mm. and it's hard to it's hard to value who you are. It's hard to even know that you matter in the world. You right. enter into a state of survival. If you're in a war, for example, mm. it's easier to not think about your rights. If you're in a war, and every day you woke up and said, oh, "You know what? I don't deserve to be in a war." Well, that's gonna lessen your mood. It's going to make you feel more hopeless. Whereas if you're just like, war is life. This is my life now. I have to accept it. Then it gets easier to wake up in the morning and and do things. When you're in a high control relationship, it and you feel like you're trapped because you often are in a lot of ways. It's just easier just to say, well, this is my life now. Why fight it? Uh, I've tried to get out. It didn't work. And here I am. And so so it just erases your connection with yourself and your identity. 
And a lot of people will talk about as they leave their relationships that they're getting to know themselves again. They're like, I don't know. I, I've spent so long erasing my identity. I, I don't know who I am anymore. So, mm. so there's a lot of reasons. And we don't have a legal system or a societal system that supports people like this. The thing mm-hmm. I always say is there's a lot of crimes in the world, right? And some crimes, for whatever reason, people will stand up and say, I have been, I have been a victim of this. And other people will stand up. And, and the other crimes, no one will stand up. Hardly anyone will stand up. If someone steals your purse while you're walking through downtown Seattle, I don't think anyone has a problem saying, someone stole my purse the other day. Or if someone breaks into your car and takes your gym bag or your laptop, not a lot of people are going to be ashamed of that. They're going to be like, someone broke into my car and took my laptop the other day. If someone hits, you know, if you get, if you're a victim of a hit and run, these are all uh, sort of in a category of crimes, but, or if someone walks up to you, if your boss walks up to you and punches you in the face, you're not going to have a lot of people say that they're afraid of that, afraid of reporting that they're going to be like, my boss punched me in the face or stabbed me with a knife or something. So there, there are certain crimes that people for the most part are, will readily stand up and say, but when it comes to dom- domestic violence, intimate partner violence, high control, w- hardly anyone comes forward saying, I'm a victim of that. Why is that? If you are a victim of sexual violence, hardly anyone comes forward and says, I was a victim of that. If you were a victim of sexual harassment at work or bullying at work, hardly anyone comes forward and says, I was a victim of that. Why is that? The only reason is because we have stigma on victims for those sorts of crimes. We don't have stigma of victims who have their laptop stolen from their cars. I mean, there's a little stigma of just like, why'd you leave your laptop out? But it's not severe. I don't know why, but that is our culture. For whatever reason, we have stigma about people who go through intimate partner violence. What was wrong with you? How come you didn't get out earlier? Why did you pick that guy? Um, What is it about you that caused that to happen? It's, it's bizarre, you know. So uh, our society will keep people in those relationships essentially by stigmatizing them. And that's another reason. So regardless of attachment style, there's just a heap of reasons why people would not leave a relationship. Now, attachment. Uh, did you want to say something about yeah, um, slightly more than half of the fears that you listed would be common to all relationships, not right. just ones where there's violence. Right. Fear of judgment, yeah. fear of the unknown. Fear of lawyers. Right. Fear of what's going to happen to the kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. and you brought up a, a good point, which is earlier, which is that when people are thinking about leaving a relationship, even if there's no abuse, it's just really hard. Even oh, if you, really? even if you're not afraid of that person, it's just a really hard thing to do for a variety of reasons. Yeah, um, uncertainty, uh, hopes that things will change, mm-hmm. things sometimes do change. Anyway, so into the research on attachment and leaving an abusive relationship with regards to attachment style. This is actually a dissertation by Michaels, 2017. Basically, distillation of the findings is that. If you have insecure attachment, it's harder for people to leave, which stands to reason. So if if you have an preoccupied, disorganized, avoidant people, 
are it makes it it's makes it harder for them to leave a intimate partner violence relationship. Um, preoccupied people, though, are different from avoidant people. They didn't really break out disorganized, but preoccupied mm-hmm. people have higher internal inhibiting factors, such as hopes that things will change, fear of loneliness, and social embarrassment. And avoidant people have higher external inhibiting factors, such as fear of harm, poor social support, financial concerns, and childhood child care needs. So everyone... Yeah, so they've found that to be so. Again, preoccupied intern, they will inhibit their leaving their abusive partner due to internal things, hopes of change, fear of loneliness, social embarrassment. Avoidant people are more. There's more external, say, more outward, pragmatic reasons like financial concerns, childcare needs, those kinds of things. But makes sense. Yeah. Because avoidant people aren't going to be in touch with their emotions as well, and preoccupied people are going to be much more terrified of loneliness than the secure person. So that's the answer to that question. Let's go on to another email. Anonymous patron wrote in and said, uh, well, and before moving on, uh, you can, if you are experiencing intimate partner violence, which I'm guessing some of you are, I just Googled DV hotline, which I always do whenever I want to get this national domestic violence hotline. And you go to it's it's the hotline dot org on the Internet and you can go there and chat with people and call people anonymously. If any of you are experiencing domestic violence, intimate partner violence, high control relationship, go there again. You don't have to do anything. A lot of people are like, well, are they're going to pressure me to leave? No, they will not. Because these are people who in all likelihood did leave relationships and totally understand that it takes a long time and that pressuring people to leave only pushes them away from support. So reach out to them. It's low risk. They, they won't come to your abuser and say that they called you, that you called them. Um, please, please, please get connected. You, a lot of people email me and say, I'm in a domestic violence relationship. What do I do? And all I say is like, you got to call this line. You got to get an advocate. You got to get a team of people around you before you can even begin to think about leaving because our society tends to look at it as this isolated thing. It's just like, well, why don't they just leave nine times out of 10 in my anecdotal experience? You need a team of people. You need that advocate, that professional. You need that therapist. You need your family. You need your friends. You need people, your work, your physician, every police officers. You need people around you that understand. You need to build that team, build a plan. Um, Because another thing is that you were kind of alluding to earlier, Bob, is that a big factor is what to do after you leave. It's sort of like, when they assassinated Julius Caesar, they didn't think about what Hmm. they were going to do after they just wanted to get rid of the tyrant. Well, you need to have a plan. Okay. You don't just invade Afghanistan or uh, you don't invade Iraq and just get rid of the bath party and say like, well, democracy will just show up. You have to have a plan, a, a, a plan for what to do after you succeed with the initial stage of your plan. So when you leave, 
that is just the beginning of the battle. It's a significant yeah. part part of the of the war, but it's just the beginning. Now you've got to start finding out who you are. You've there's a legal battle with if you have kids. There's uh, helping you to feel like you're a good enough person, even though there's all this onslaught from your ex partner telling you that you're a bad person. You might miss that person. You might be lonely. You might desperately want to go back, and so. It's got to be a team, and the hotline.org is the beginning of that process for you. They, have, they, have, they know that this process forwards and backwards, and do not just say, well, I need to get enough willpower to leave. Oh, like, yeah, who has that? Yeah. That's you know what I really it. appreciate huh. about what you're saying is you're saying you got to get a team, and the thing is is that having a team could be such a great comfort. Yeah, could be just so helpful to you and make the choice in front of you easier or more palatable or less scary. Um, not zero scary, because that would be scary. I mean, it's just fucking scary anyways. Um, but the comfort of having somebody walk with me, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Through such a difficult thing. Oh, God. Yeah. 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 Oh, I kicked something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so for those who don't know, Bob is at home and I'm at home. He's at his home. I'm, I'm in my home. And he has a uh, contraption <laughs> to set up his microphone. He has a TV tray with a packing foam uh, platform on top of that to raise his microphone on a... And he has a tiny little tripod that I swear to God is the most janky tripod I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want you to understand the hardship that Bob has to go through to uh, speak to y'all. Uh, by the way, people will often want to reach out to Bob. Feel free to email us and I'll forward to him or comment yeah. below and we will we'll forward to him as well. Oh, you know what? I got a bunch of comments recently. I, uh, uh, I just want to say thank you. They were lovely. Yeah, particularly to your solo episodes. Yeah, the solo one. Yeah. Yeah. It was nice. Yeah. Well, you've had two solo ones that people really appreciated. Mm-hmm. When's the next one coming out? I don't know. I've been thinking about uh, something uh, that I might want to talk about. What the hell was it? Now it's out of, it just flew out of my head. Yeah. Uh, something with couples, because you know me. That's what I think about these days. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember what I wanted to talk about. So. Well. Oh, well. I'm sure everyone's looking forward to it. Oh, cool. And now you have a awesome jerry-rigged uh, <laughs> mic stand. <laughs> um, all right. Anonymous patron writes in and says, Sexuality is so different for teens now than when I was a teen. When I was a teen, the only thing that was on my radar is, are you gay, straight, or bisexual? And that wasn't hard for me to figure out. But my young teens, unashamedly, are talking to me about much deeper sexual issues than I ever thought of when I was their age, or mm-hmm. even what I had heard of from my peers when I was that age. Mm-hmm. Where are they on this spectrum? Are they straight, gay, in the middle, or something else? Does enjoying gay porn mean you're gay? If you're a girl and enjoy boy love anime, does that mean that you want to be a boy, and a gay boy at that? And in a lot of ways, I think this is good ex- exploration. But also, I think they are overthinking it based on my experiences. Bob, what do you think? I wonder what overthinking it means. Like, 
do they think that maybe the kids are preoccupied with it? Like, not preoccupied attachment style, just like it's on their minds a lot? Are they obsessive? Is that what they think? Or what's overthinking? I think what it means is that they are thinking about things before they have enough experience to know anything about it. Yeah. It's it's sort of like you're about to go on a vacation somewhere and you're you're like over planning when you just have to l- kind of be in the moment when you get there to some extent. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of anticipatory thinking cuz you're you just want to think about it cuz you're it's on the brain, but a lot of it is like, well, you're just going to have to figure it out as you go, part of it. I think that's what she or another th- a factor, and this actually mm. might be more likely, is that mm-hmm. she might be saying, are they overthinking it like there's so much influence on the internet and, and, and culture for people young today, which I think is wonderful, mm. that there's so many options mm-hmm. and there's so many permutations and so many identities that it might be for some people who might feel like, hmm, you know what, I think I am a cis gay person. But all these other people are talking about all these other things. And it makes me wonder, should I be considering those other things? What if I'm this? What if I'm that? I think maybe that's the overthinking part of it. I don't know. Do you think people are doing that? I don't know if they're doing it, but I suppose when when I have questions, whether... Mm, when I have questions, what's been most helpful to me is to have a free space to talk about them or reflect on them without the idea that I have to reach some kind of conclusion or um, uh, I guess I think maybe it's the journey and how I go on the journey rather than the destination. Yeah, I like that. And what I'll say is, yeah, uh, in working with young people, I've seen the same thing, uh, quote unquote, overthinking it. I wouldn't say it's a terrible thing. I would say that it's a good development and the conversations and the thinking really liberates everyone, including young people on a lot of fronts. So mm-hmm. I think I think it's a good thing. And what a wonderful thing to overthink. There's a lot worse things that you could overthink about. <laughs> and man, is it an improvement from the 80s? Because in the 80s, for us, it was gay is horrible and disgusting and gross and weird. And that's just all that you have to know about it. And anyway, going on with the emails here, with her email. I have found that locking porn out of your house is nearly impossible. Hmm. They can find it on their school's iPads. They, they can find it on the TV, even when you do your best to block these sorts of things. There are lots of nanny apps, but they don't really work. You have to be either an obsessive helicopter parent or a super internet sleuth to have any idea what they are up to online. My niece, who is 25, gave me some advice. She she said there are apps or programs that let you pick the porn your kid is allowed to watch. It isn't being based on gay, straight, etc. It is more about them watching loving and kind real sex instead of the rougher or the one-sided stuff that that is heavily out there. Part of me is wondering if that isn't such a bad idea. And part of me thinks it's a terrible idea. But part of me thinks... They're going to see it anyway. Maybe it's better that I curate more healthy porn for them 
and part of me thinks that is abusive. I'm wondering what you, and Bob perhaps, thinks about that. Bob, what do you think? I got to tell you, I'm so glad sometimes that I'm not a parent, because <laughs> I don't have to think about this sort of thing, and I don't have to sweat it. I don't know what I would do if I had a kid, um, and it, it does feel like a blessing in this regard to not have one. I have no idea. It's it's curious. I mean, it's kind of, it's an interesting idea, and it's sort of amusing to think, oh, all right, don't try to stop them from seeing it. Mon- uh, give them something to see. Give them something that I'd want them to see more than the other thing that's gross and, you know, awful. Um, but I don't know if it's a good idea or not. How would you know? It How is would a, anybody know? Yeah, it is a very weird conundrum that... yeah. I don't think I've heard articulated this well before. Yeah, really articulated well. Yeah, which is, of course, the kids in my house have access to porn. Right. Even if I do everything I can, at least their friend's phone might be accessible right. to porn. Right. The, there, are, there are ways that they're going to get their hands on porn. That's true. And there's nothing wrong with ethical porn. And I want my kids to develop a healthy sexuality. Now, the tradition in our society is essentially a don't ask, don't tell society with our kids. All of us know that our kids are, well, all of us know that on average, kids are looking at porn, masturbating, and having sex, and thinking about sex, and doing all, and having a robust initial sex life. From mm-hmm. the age of whatever to whatever. Mm-hmm. And we also know on average that a lot of kids have a lot of misinformation. Mm-hmm. But most parents, not all by any means, are basically like, well, I just hope, I hope the best for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and actually, I remember research that looked into most parents believe their kids are below average in sexuality. You know, like that can't be true, right? Like that most because if most parents believe that all their kids are below average then you know what i mean yeah so it's hard for parents to imagine also kids will hide it because of stigma yeah but it does yeah it does raise this really interesting question of just like well if they're gonna see porn i'd rather have them look at ethical porn or porn that is more healthy to their brains than healthy that because the average porn on the internet is not healthy for their brains in general. And so it, what if I actually set them up with this thing my niece was showing me, which is, which is loving, kind, you know, non-aggressive, non-rapey kind of sex uh, stuff on the internet. It raises a really weird question. Mm -hmm. And I I wonder what our society is going to do with this moving forward. Yeah. Uh, because I think it is, I think it is an important question. I can't imagine at this point anyone having a mature approach to this question, or very few people. Culture in general, I cannot imagine what Fox News would do with a story like this. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, mother, give because the other thing is, is there are plenty of cases where parents actually do give their kids porn. And the kids are, it's a form of sexual abuse. It's actually written into the law that to expose kids to porn is actually considered sexual abuse. 
I think right. it's written into Washington law. And so what's that about, right? <laughs> like what's the, where's the line there? So yeah, uh, what I'll say is that, that I don't know the answer to that. There are so many different angles to this. The other thing to me is, why hasn't Microsoft or Google or Apple figured out a way to limit access for children? I mean, it's bizarre that we live in 2020 and we are just like, well, what are you going to do? I mean, I guess kids are just going to be, I mean, have we given up hope on protecting our kids from the, the terrible, I mean, the kinds of things that I've accidentally seen on the internet, not porn per se, but violence has been traumatizing to me. There's this one video. There's actually two videos that I've seen over the past 20 years on accident that are burned into my brain. I I can I I saw one video about 20 years ago, maybe longer, and I saw another video about 4 years ago. I could tell you every single detail and it was it was violence. It was gun violence. And mm. it was traumatic for me to watch that because it was a real it was real footage and i've replayed this one video in my head over and over and over again because it's it was so awful like i can't stop but like right now i'm holding like 10 snapshots in my head just as i think about it mm. so imagine what that so that's me as an adult who mm-hmm. presumably has more resources internally and externally to protect myself from this what are the average 10-year-olds, 13-year-olds being exposed to in this way? I just can't imagine that that is a good thing and that we're just supposed to give up and that parents out there are just like, yeah, I mean, you can do what you can, but nothing's going to work. I mean, that is just messed up. That is a terrible, terrible state of affairs. That Because you know that if Google and Microsoft and Apple got together and Facebook, that they would be able to figure this out. It might create some headache for everyone. Like there's certain logins you have to use or I don't know, something, but there's gotta be a way that 10 year olds aren't going to come across snuff videos and rape porn and animals being slaughtered. Like there's gotta be a way that we can protect our kids. You know, would the people that make those videos seek a way to find more audience including kids do you think in yeah in other words if we build a better mouse trap will we make a smarter mouse yeah but is, is there anything in it for maker to um garner a young audience totally but oh but you know like think about imagine this imagine this is very simplistic but let's say that for a certain age somehow you you are able to totally determine by the device the the device was totally able to determine how old the person or if the person was of age or not Mm -hmm. that doesn't seem to be that hard to me um two on youtube they go to youtube and there's just a certain you know uh youtube already doesn't have a lot of terrible stuff but it does have some terrible stuff for kids and it just effectively gets rid of it. Now, I know some of you are commenting below already and saying, there are things you can do. And I know that. I know that there are things. But the fact that some parents are out there struggling with this, I think, means that we haven't done enough. And I feel like we've just given up 
as a society. Because I remember when the internet first came along in the 90s that there was a lot of concern about this. And there were things that people were doing. And I remember kids actually being effectively prevented from seeing certain things on the internet. But then the internet helped them to hack around it, you know, anyway. Well, kids, they have a natural curiosity about sex. Right. The kids have a natural curiosity. That's all my point was. So the larger question is, how do you raise a child with a healthy right. sexuality? Like, Right. That is right. Instead of like the nuance here, which is an important question to consider, mm-hmm. I think the bigger question is like, how do you raise a kid with healthy sexuality? Because I think if you do that, then the onslaught of the internet will be not as affecting to that person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a tough thing to do in our culture because if you even talk about sexuality with your kids beyond sex is bad and STIs are going to kill you, then you're already a questionable parent, according to a lot of people. So Mm -hmm. it's a really tough thing. But I think the general thing is to have conversations with them, age appropriate, ongoing. Yeah. What a lot of parents, I think, do is they avoid it. And then they're like, okay, I'm going to talk with them about it. And then once every three years, they have that sit-down talk, and the kids are l- rolling their eyes and going like, "Sure, I don't want to be here right now. But if you just make it a casual thing with your kids of just like, make even just make jokes. Just be like, so, dad's going to talk with you about sex again, and I, because, mm-hmm. you, you know, maybe you know everything because you got the internet, but I, I care about you, and I, I just want to give you a few pointers about what's happening in life for you. Or I'd love to hear any concerns or questions that you have. And this isn't just apply to sex, but it re- applies to relationships. It applies to career development. It applies to bullies and and uh, you know, all the things that kids go through. It's incredibly important that you have an open forum to talk about those things with your kids. You have, you have life experience as a parent. You have a lot to offer. Now, you also want to listen and not just impose your own points of view. So, uh, but that's a, that's a place to start. What we, again, in our culture, what we tend to do is just like, well, society will take care of it. And I just want every parent to think about that. If you aren't having conversations with your kids, and I know I'm being a PSA right now, ah. but if you're not having conversations with your kids about alcohol, substances, sex, bullies, relationships, career, then they're having conversations with the internet and with their friends. Do you trust the internet and their friends? Because schools aren't talking with them that much about it. There might be like a couple days a year where they talk about these things. And then the rest of the year they talk about quote unquote easier things. So it's important that you talk about it. And just think about the way that we used to live in a more natural state. There wasn't an internet. There weren't even schools uh, 10,000 years ago. You learned everything from your parents. That's the natural way. Your parents know how to t- speak the language. They know how to, t- you know, till the fields. They know how to gather berries. They know how to hunt the wildebeest. They know how to make food. They know how to make shelter. And they also know about sex. And they also know about uh, relationships. They, you know, parents know things. And so, anyway. You, what do you think of the idea that if I'm a parent, doesn't mean I have to be an expert? And that I can say to my kid, you know, 
sometimes I don't know what to do. Absolutely. I mean, I, that's the expert position is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You're going to see this stuff, and and I, I'm not going to try to stop that from happening. Uh, I, another way to say that, a better way to say that is, I don't really get power over whether or not you're going to see it. You probably are going to see it. Is this relationship you have with me a safe place for you to talk about that? I would want it to be. And what we do about it, maybe it is less important than I walk with you in a loving way and we get where we're ever going together. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. The other thing that you can do is to give kids resources. When I was a kid, I had three best friends and we lived in a row. So there was Tommy and Charlie's house, there was my house, and there was Steve's house. And we had this, in our shared backyard, there was this humongous forest, and we were like crazy wild forest people all year round. I've never seen your growing up house. We should go out there sometime. You've never been to my parents' house. They still live there. I've never been there. Yeah, I know. That's bizarre. No, I've never been there. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. Which part of, which, do you live on the south side or the north side of 90? So it's the north side of 90, and it's ah. the S- Sammamish Plateau. You lived and, on the plateau? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know, know that. I, bu- I was there once because our friend Bish, remember, Bish lived there. Yeah. She had a house there on the plateau uh, a long time ago. Okay. I yeah. think she lived on the Redmond side of the plateau, not the- Oh, is that right? I don't know. but Not the good side. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I grew up with a lot of forest and a lot of undeveloped land, and we would play together. Anyway, so Tommy and Charlie's mom gave the four of us a sex book for kids. Wow. And I'm sure, and I'm, from my memory, checked it out with our, the other parents to make sure it was okay. Mm -hmm. And the four of us sat in Tommy and Charlie's room and read this sex ed book for kids. And I think we were probably like in the second grade or something. Oh. And maybe a little older, maybe like fourth grade. And I remember mind blowing every page and it was all cartoon and it was all, it was a basic, you know, the sperm and the egg and the sperm had a little top hat on it. And the, (laughs) the egg had a little, had a wedding veil, if you will. And, but they showed People having sex in a missionary position, but it was, again, cartoon. It was like, <laughs> it was basically like Homer and Marge having sex, if that makes sense. <laughs> like like that that level of, of animation where it's very simple, you know what I mean? Yeah. This is not photorealistic. No, exactly. Yeah. And I just remember being completely, you know, mind-blowing at the time. It's just like, wait, What? Uh-huh. That's what you do with that. It was just <laughs> so crazy, but very helpful. And then skip forward maybe a couple years, and me and my friend, uh, the mom, Justin, my friend who who lived across the street, and his mom gave us Forever by Judy Bloom. Do you know this book? Mm-hmm. I'm familiar. I know that that book exists. Yeah, yeah. I actually have it behind me on the shelf. Oh, but all right. I bought a copy of it because it was so formative to my life. But so there, Judy Bloom, for those who don't know, was a child's like a, a middle or a, a like a, a 10 year old, eight to 10 year old 
book writer. She would write books for eight and 10 year olds. She wrote a book. I, I think she wrote tales of the fourth grade, nothing. And mm-hmm. Margaret, it's me. God, are you there? God, God? It's, are you there? God, it's Margaret and, and flubber. Yeah. I think she wrote all these books that you're supposed to read when you're eight years old. And she was extremely popular in yeah. in the seventies. It was every every second grader worshipped Judy Bloom. She was just mm-hmm. like the most amazing. And then she wrote this book called Forever, and a lot of parents just bought that book for their kids. In the seventies, books were big. You know, it was just there wasn't a lot of TV programming for kids, and so you basically bought books for kids anyway. So. And they were very popular. It was sort of like, she was sort of the Harry, she was sort of the J.K. Rowling of the 70s in a lot of ways. And so the, the next book that she wrote, it's called Forever. And all the parents just bought that book for their kids without knowing what it was about. And it's about a teenage girl who is going through high school and she meets a guy and they have a relationship and they have sex. And it, there's, a, there's sex scenes in this book. And all this talk about penises and vaginas and, and it there and that book everyone read it. <laughs> everyone. It was the talk of the school in let's see what would have been fifth grade, I'm thinking. Mm. And but there were so many things in there that we just didn't understand. None of us did at school. And so this mom, she gave us the book, my friend's mom, and she said, okay, I'm going to be in the other room, and why don't you read this book together, and when you have questions, come over and ask me a question. And so we came to, and I'll never forget, we came to this section where she was talking about worrying about getting VD. So before you had STIs, you had STDs, right. and before you had right. STDs, you had VDs, these venereal <laughs> diseases. And <laughs> we asked her, we said, what, what does that mean? And she's like, oh, well, it's venereal disease, and it's a disease you get from having sex in your genital region, something like that. And we're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) We ask her a few more questions, and we go back into the room, and we're just like, wait, think of the implications of that. That is just, like, crazy. So then the next day on the bus, the two of us just start asking everyone, hey, do you have a VD? And... (laughs) And, and no matter what they no matter what they said, we would laugh. So uh-huh. like, you know, we asked Shelly Soulsby, "Do you have VD?" And she's like, "Uh, no." <laughs> and then we'd ask someone else, "Hey, Cheryl Hooper." <laughs> These are actually people I went to school with. "Do you have VD?" And Cheryl's like, "Um, yes." <laughs> like we. <laughs> had the power of sex ed behind us. And the first thing we did with it was to ridicule everyone around us. <laughs> uh. So anyway, anonymous yep. patron, you can get your kids resources. And then the question about the internet porn situation might not be as worrisome because they mm-hmm. will like just the notion of internet porn isn't real. 99% of it is not the way people really have sex. Right. If you really kind of get that into their head, um, that might help. Now, I will say that there are a, there's a lot of things to consider. Some people can be compulsive around pornography and around masturbation. 
Um, some people would feel I'm being remiss in not mentioning that. It's rare. Um, some people can develop situations where they can basically only get turned on by pornography and can't get turned on by quote-unquote real people. There's not anything inherently pathological about that unless it ruins your life, which it could, but it doesn't necessarily have to. So it's not like there aren't other things to consider. But anyway, she goes on to another even more interesting question here, Bob. No, okay. And everyone out there, if you're listening on YouTube, comment below. I want to know what you think about this, all this stuff. She goes on, and then there are sex toys. Teens know about them. Some teens want them. One of my children has been brave and asked me to buy a sex toy for them so they can experiment privately without their specific about their specific curiosities. I want my teens to experiment privately while they develop their sexual identity and preferences, but buying them sex toys is out of my comfort zone. Mm. And also, I'm not sure if it's actually wrong or not, or is it right? At least they are clean and safe. Sex toys are clean and they're safe. Sex toys can be fun, and they can be a way to develop your own sexuality. But in my mind, that's for adults. But right now, teens and even tweens are easily able to find online stimulation. But again, we're talking about young teens here. And I don't think it is right for parents to provide porn or sex toys, but I also want my teens to be safe, healthy, comfortable with sex, consensual, learn on their own before becoming sexually active, etc. I'm so torn and a little confused, a lot confused, and I'm in way over my head. What do you guys think? What do you guys think? Bob, what do you think about that one? Well, I think parents decide, you know, when when can my kid get their ear pierced, right? Like you can't do that if you're 12, you can't do that till you're 15, they might say. And maybe it's arbitrary. 15's arbitrary, you're 17 or whatever it is, right? I don't know if there's a right or wrong developmental period in which oh the kid this kid's old enough for a sex toy or this kid isn't how do you know if somebody's old enough to have their ears pierced but you know we make these we make these rules we say well no not till you're 14 or whatever it is that we say and if if this person the patron the parent writing in is thinking well i don't feel comfortable with that okay great at what point if is there a point at which you would feel comfortable with that and then can you just treat it the way you would treat you're piercing like no not going to do that until you know you're 16 or whatever it is and and then yes then uh we can talk about that but i don't think you're old enough yet i don't think you're i don't think you're ready i don't i don't know how a parent decides if their kid's ready to get their ear pierced like do you know how they do that i mean it's probably idiosyncratic right it's probably personal yeah i think it has something to do with a rite of passage it's sort of for some families the marker of your now a woman or a old enough person to right. seem sexual. And of course that is not everyone. Some people ear, have put ear piercings on their babies. On their so babies, yeah. It's totally cultural and, and personal to people. But but yeah, right. that is an interesting That's question. Point. That it, and and I wonder if in the future we'll have that. Like you, you can get ear pierced when you're fifteen, you can get your first dildo when you're sixteen you have free access to the internet when you're 17. You can, yeah. you know. Did you know that they changed the smoking age in Washington to 21? Or 21. Like, they just, did mm-hmm. you know that, did, do I have that yeah. right? 
Yeah, you do. And it was recent, and it was, like, fast. Like, I don't know that anybody knew it was coming, and then yeah. suddenly, it's 21, guys. Tough luck. Yeah. That is, I find to be, I mean, I, I'm glad it happened, because it, it kind of makes sense. It's like, why could you smoke and not drink yet? I mean, smoking can be just awful. Um, and... It is weird, though, because it's like, well, I, I can go overseas and die for my country, but I can't smoke or drink yet. Yeah. Um, but what's 99% of my reaction to it is that it happened without it seemingly any fanfare. There weren't any news yeah. articles or tweets yeah. or Facebook posts. It just passed, and no I one... I think there was a... There wasn't a public vote, was there? It was just a legislature... I don't even know, but yeah. I was, I thought, how have we not heard about this yeah. developing? Yeah. Because <laughs> um, if this happened 10 years ago, this would have, or at least 20 years ago, this would have been headline news. It would, there would have been such an outcry. I, f I feel like if I think about it, this is evidence that our smoking culture, at least in Washington state, has become so subdued and beaten down that none of them have any political clout anymore and no one wants to talk about it. Because there, there was a time, you know, we're old enough to know, and I, I smoked a pack a day when I was in my 20s. And you and I are old enough to know that there was a time when all restaurants were, were smoking. Right. Pla planes were smoking, uh, College classrooms were smoking, not really, but just before we went to college. Did when you went to college, did they have smoking in? Yeah, it wasn't long before you and I went to college where people smoked in college classrooms. My my roommate was a smoker though, and insisted on his right to smoke in my room, you know, two person dorm room. That sucked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Today that would obviously be completely banned, and so you and I grew up in a time when when we were young, when smoking was just a part of the world right. and people would smoke in libraries without the window being open. Smoke was just everywhere. Can you remember what it felt like to go to a club, like a dance club or a, or a live venue for a music show? Everyone is smoking. There's no ventilation. Do you remember that? I, you know, Colleen and I were talking about this the other day, this very thing. I actually don't remember it. Even though I was, what, 25 or 30 whenever they banned all smoking in the, you know, 25 feet from the front door. That's not that old. You I were wasn't 30. A kid. You, you were probably in your 30s. Yeah. In my 30s. Because yeah. that's not that old a rule. And yet I cannot remember walking into one of these places and smelling smoke anymore. I cannot remember it. Oh, God. Uh, well, I can... One, because I used to smoke, and two, because when I quit smoking, oh. I hated the smell of smoke. Once right. I quit, smelling smoke just, I wanted to, my throat would actually kind of close up. Yeah. But, yeah, so we've seen things change over time, um, and I think we've come to this point now. So my point is, is 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. If there were any laws restricting, because I remember all the laws restricting smoking back then was like, we're now going to, in Washington State, make all restaurants smoke-free. You can no longer have a smoking section. 
Like there was a time when they said you have to have a smoking section. And then there was a time when they said you can't even have a smoking section. Right. But but you can still smoke in bars, they said. And then there was a day when they said you can't smoke in bars. Right. And then they said you can't smoke close to the entrance. And they every step of the way, all the smokers of the world and the ACLU and pro, you know other uh, you know libertarians would come to the to the forefront and scream and yell, "You can't do this to us! It's a free country. If you don't want to come to that bar that has smoking in it." Then don't go to that bar. Go of course, somewhere the else. Converse is also true. If you want to smoke, you can do it somewhere else. You right. Can. Right. Well, that right. was the debate. Yeah. But the right. but up until the those changes, the consensus right. was the smokers have the rights, and the other people that don't want smoking don't have right. the rights. They don't. Yeah. And we've now gotten to a point where smoking is so out of our culture, and and people do not care about smokers' rights. That this law that is so significant that makes it, you have to be 21 to smoke a cigarette and buy cigarettes, uh, that um, it just went completely under the radar. Just a non-issue. Right. Smokers are ashamed these days. Yeah. 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 Which is wrong as as long as they are doing what they need to do. Yeah. I oh, will so say, we, though, that uh-huh. there are some people, I have a friend, a colleague, who has people who are smoking cigarettes right outside her window in her apartment building, mm-hmm. and she has repeatedly asked them nicely to just walk five feet away from her window, and yeah, and it's turned into this World War Three situation it's where- feud. Ugh. Yeah. And now that's not all smokers, hashtag not all smokers, but- yeah. Uh, anyway, well, I think we got a little off track with our uh, the patron's question. I, I did have one one final thought about that, which is, um, not my current therapist, my previous therapist, really lovely uh, psychologist over there in Bellevue, really helpful to me. I, I, she was she was great. She told me a story about her daughter, who at the time was twenty two, and what she did was. She sat down with her kid and she said, you know, I wasn't a perfect parent and these are the things that I, that I did that I regret and I wanted to apologize to you. And her kid laughed and said, mom, no, those are okay. This other thing on though, this one, this one bugged me. And my, my therapist was like, has, you know, humility and was like, oh, okay. Cause the point wasn't, you will accept my apology. And I, the point was just like, you know, like, you know, like uh, they have those exit interviews, you know, if you're leaving a job, I mean, they're kind of formality and they're kind of stupid. Right. But, but the idea that you would want feedback and you would want to kind of like, after the game, let's talk about the match. Let's talk about how it went. You know, like you could sit with your kid and you could say, you know, I didn't know what to do about sex toys. And I did the best I could. And how did it go for you? Did it mess you up? Did it help? Was it helpful? Would you, if you had to do it over again, would you want me to do something different? You know, what's the impact of this thing? And not pretend that I have to be some fucking kind of expert. I, when she told me that story, I was just full of admiration and awe because I had never heard of a parent ever having that kind of uh, compassion and uh, foresight, uh, not foresight, um, uh, what it is when you step out of yourself and you get in the shoes of the other, or consider the possibility 
for the other, the other person's experience. I guess they call that empathy um, or, or, or humility to um, be that, I don't know, matter of fact about what it's like to be a parent, what it's like to be a kid and our family, what was it like to be a member of our family as we kind of went through the first 21 years together. That was awesome. Yeah. I wonder if this person who wrote in would, they seemed like the kind of heads up parent that would consider such a thing. I don't know. I liked it. Yeah. And it has implications for what to do before the exit interview, right? To yeah. maybe ask your kids like, well, what do you think is going to help you? Um, let's talk oh. about it. Wow, that, what a great question. I don't have to figure this out. I can figure it out with you. What do you think is going to help you? That's a fabulous question. Right. But then you live in this culture. Because, you yeah, know, ima- imagine the headline, uh, you know, father buys daughter 12-year-old, 12, father buys 12-year-old daughter a vibrator for Christmas. Like, that is not going to go over well <laughs> in our society. No, uh, I, I mean, I cringe when I hear you say the headline, right? It's like, oh, God, 12, that's pretty young. And for Christmas, is this really, you know, it's like creepy sounding right. on the surface of it. Right. But when you think about what this anonymous patron is emailing, it's like, oh, right. It, it's like interesting thing to think about that it wouldn't be automatically this horrific, creepy thing. I don't know. I, don't, I really don't know the answer to these questions. No, I don't either. Yeah. Nobody does really. But but what's cool about her or they, I don't know who they are. What's cool about them writing in is they consider their kids sexual development and sexual health. I mean, that's just really awesome. And yeah. and they consider it and are um bold enough, brave enough um to write in and ask a question about it. It's like wow, man. Heads up parenting. Love it. Yeah. It, the thing that I well, always, because I used to a good, I don't know, first 15 years of my career, about a third of my clients were parents asking me advice about what to do with their yeah. kids. And what I would frequently come back to in these nuanced, specific conversations is say, yeah, you know, these nuances, these specific conundrums are important to consider, but the overall overwhelming issue here is does your child feel loved by you right does your child feel safe right does does your child feel like they have self-esteem do they feel connected to you with those things that all parents know how to do all the other stuff will fall into place on average (laughs) you know a, a kid who feels loved, has self-esteem, knows their knows themselves, knows where to turn when they're struggling. And let's say they start going down a weird rabbit hole with porn and they start looking at that stuff and they're just like, I don't know, it seems kind of weird. They'll be able to check it with themselves and say, I don't know if this is so good for me. Maybe I should ask my mom about it. Or maybe I should ask my friend who knows, or my older sibling who knows, there's, they feel able to connect and and adjust and get input and support as they muddle their way through things that inevitably you're not going to have any control over as a parent. Yeah. You right. know, if if you did give your kids 
po- sex positive porn. If you did give your kids sex toys, it's not going to eliminate their meandering odd path through their sexuality and society. It's just going to maybe mitigate a small percentage of it, but it's not going to eliminate it. So most of it is out of your control anyway as a parent. But mm-hmm. if your child feels loved, cared for, and safe, and that they are a good that they are a good person, that they're worth, uh, you know, that they're worth it, then mm-hmm. that'll usually that'll usually work out in the end. If you want to focus on something. Focus on that. And if you Those don't are, know what to do yeah. about sex toys and porn, continue to debate that in your mind and with other people and continue loving your children, giving mm-hmm. them what they need, being attuned to their feelings, and things usually work out. Yeah. Uh, now, before I get any comments, of course, you can do all that and live in a racist society and society can screw your kids up for sure. I'm not saying that that isn't true. Um, I think we should just adjourn there, Bob, because yeah. if we get into another email, I feel like we're going to, we're not going to give it what it deserves, which Good is a, a full Bob Kirk exploration <laughs> in which I eventually talk about smoking in the seventies and <laughs> meander <laughs> away from the topic. So Bob, what's the final word for the listeners today? I love your kids. Yeah. That's what I got. That's a good one. Love your kids. And love yourself. Yeah. Why should they do that, Bob? You deserve it. So do the kids.